For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Have you heard that phrase from seed to garment? Probably, right? Because natural textiles are grown in the earth. But how often does fashion get its fingernails into the actual dirt? I hope there are some gardeners listening because our guest today loves worms. (laughs) And as a kid, she loved growing tomatoes. Nina Morenzi has a master's degree in sustainable agriculture. Today, she works in fashion. She runs something called the Sustainable Angle, which puts on the Future Fabrics Expo in London. And it's all about what she calls diversifying the fibre basket or rethinking fashion materials. And Nina says we need to step up regenerative agriculture demand more organic and circular materials, and just transition to new ones that don't trash our soil. Before we begin, I want to share a bit of context by reading some words from one of my favourite writers on the environment, George Monbiot. He writes for The Guardian, and if you haven't read his extraordinary book, Feral, I highly recommend it. In an article called We're Treating Soil Like Dirt, George wrote this. Imagine a wonderful world, a planet on which there is no threat of climate breakdown, no loss of fresh water, no antibiotic resistance, no obesity crisis, no terrorism, no war. Surely then we would be out of major danger. Sorry, even if everything else were miraculously fixed, we're finished if we don't address an issue considered so marginal and irrelevant that you can go for months without seeing it in a newspaper. It is literally beneath us. All human life depends on it. We knew this long ago, but somehow it's been forgotten. And he quotes from a Sanskrit text written in 1500 BC that reads, Upon this handful of soil our survival depends. Husband it and it will grow our food, our fuel and our shelter and surround us with beauty. Abuse it and the soil will collapse and die, taking humanity with it. Now George says this issue hasn't changed, but we have. How's this for a sentence? Landowners around the world are now engaged in an orgy of soil destruction so intense that, according to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, the world on average has just 60 more years of growing crops. (sighs) Right? Not good news. But I've been reading up on this and I wanted to share what I've learned. We are losing 30 soccer fields of soil every minute, and that's mostly due to intensive farming. The reasons soil degrade include overgrazing, agrochemicals and deforestation. By clearing the natural vegetation that binds soil, we untether it so it can literally blow or wash away. And we've seen this happen in Australia during the drought. Planting crops like coffee, cotton, palm oil, soybean and wheat can increase the soil's erosion beyond its ability to maintain itself. Now, obviously, there's good ways of growing some of these things. Some, 
not palm oil, please. But regenerative farming practices are all about increasing biodiversity and enriching the soil. And fashion has a part to play. It can be part of the solution. Cotton takes up around 2.5% of the world's arable land. But we also use soil to graze the animals that provide fibres, to grow other virgin fibre sources, so what, bamboo, eucalyptus, other wood used for viscose, or even something as innocuous as the plants that provide natural dyes. Basically, all life on land depends on soil. 95% of our food comes from it, but soil also does other vital jobs. It's a carbon sink. It can hold about three times as much carbon as is in the atmosphere. It can also be a filter and a buffer for contaminants, so it can help us with pollution. But this capacity is finite. And we humans, we've got this thing, haven't we? A bit of a problem with the idea of finite. We just don't respect it. We just think things are going to go on forever, even if we keep abusing them. We need to open our eyes. According to the UN, one third of our global soils are already degraded, generating three centimetres, just three centimetres of topsoil takes 1,000 years. And if current rates of degradation continue, basically all the world's topsoil could be gone in 60 years. Seriously, what are we doing? Now, I'm sorry to hit you with all of this, and I hope I haven't rattled you too much. But like I say in my book, Rise and Resist... We need to know what we're dealing with if we're going to make change, if we're going to pressure our governments and brands and everyone to change these broken systems. Now, don't think this is a gloomy episode. It's actually not. It's actually like carpool karaoke, but without the singing. (laughs) Nina is really interested in how fashion can do good things around these big issues. You'll hear her mention the work that Caring is doing with regenerative agriculture, and we don't really get into that case study, but I will share some links. You might also want to listen back to the recent episode with Claire Bergkamp, who heads up sustainability at Stella McCartney and is also looking into this stuff. Okay, Nina, let's fix this. Come on. (laughs) I've got a fire in my belly. I want to see it changing. Let's hear from Nina. Nina, (laughs) where are we? Good morning, Claire. We are in the car, (laughs) going from one meeting to the next. And it was the perfect place. It's got such good acoustics. At least I hope so. Do you know what? I've recorded podcasts in all manner of strange environments. People often say, can you come to my office? And it's not ideal because they're open plan and noisy and busy. People say, can you come to cafes? No, no, no. So we look for places that are discreet with not too much of the surfaces that bounce sound. There's a bit of traffic. Sometimes in cupboards. Yes, I was thinking of that too. (laughs) Broom cupboards. Um, At least it's a Toyota Prius. I've been trying to pin you down ever since the 8th edition of the Future Fabrics Expo, at which I talked and came to discover things. What's it all about? Well, first of all, thank you for coming to do the moderating of some of the panels. That was excellent. Um, We had about 2,500 visitors at the Expo. And it was extraordinary the amount of excitement there was. Um, It was real. The buzz was palpable. We had more than we ever had. It was a venue that was three times as big. And we showed about 5,000 materials with a lower environmental footprint. And that's the whole point of the Expo. It really is to make it easy for fashion brands and designers to find such materials that we have sourced very carefully for them and looked at their certifications. And we have really studied in what way are they more sustainable. 
what are your criteria for choosing the materials? Can you give us some examples? So we've got four criteria. They were established with the Centre for Sustainable Fashion and it's about water usage, it's about effluent treatment of water, it's about biodiversity, respecting biodiversity, energy, what energy was used, how much was used. And then the fourth one is waste, how much waste has been produced, how much has been reused in a process of it. And it really looks at raw materials as well as processing technology. So it's the whole lifespan and the end of life of the material. When I was on stage, I did a bit of a recce and asked everyone in the audience, raise your hands if you work in sourcing, if you are a designer, or if you're not working in the industry. And I was expecting everybody to be fabric sourcing people, yes. professionals. Yes. There were lots of shows of hands from simply interested people who were interested in sustainability. Yes, and actually we have, when we're looking at the data of who attended, there was also quite a bit more than ever from the finance community. There were investors, there were, of course, journalists generally as well. Um, there is a lot of people from interior design now. We get more than ever before. So it really is quite wide. And I would say generally, though, every Everyone is a creative or has an eye on the investment opportunities. So that is starting more and more. I just thought it was such an interesting testament to the growth of the issue of sustainability yeah, that people absolutely. actually just want to find out what are the possibilities mm. for fabrics that yes. would be kinder to the environment. Absolutely. And it is not the general public who comes. So it really is people who have an interest from a business point of view as well. And that is very important because that's what's needed. We need more investment into these new materials or fashion brands using it. What are some of the main problems with conventional fabrics that we use for our clothes? I think you can put it this way. Conventional cotton and virgin polyester are sort of the big culprits. And these are the fibres that are most commonly used. And if well, we something like 70% of clothing is made from polyester. Exactly. So it's really it's huge. So conventional cotton has a problem that it is irrigated crop. It uses a lot of water. It does grow on fertile soil. It uses a massive amount of pesticides. It needs synthetic fertilizers. So all of these inputs, as we call them, are, first of all, they're polluting and they are unsustainable in, its product, in their production. And so from the health of the workers working with that, it's totally unsustainable. For the environment, it's unsustainable. And overall, we're running out of these inputs anyway because synthetic fertilizers are made of fossil fuels and that is a limited resource you mentioned cotton what then are the environmental problems associated with polyester obviously it's using fossil fuels too because it's derived from petroleum exactly and we have the issue that you know it stays in the environment for hundreds of years it doesn't degrade and it also contributes to the microfiber pollution in the oceans so from any point of view it is really not a good material to use as we know now and yet, there are so many alternatives, some of them very, very colourful. Share with us some of the weirder and more wonderful materials that were showcased at the Expo. There are obviously dozens and dozens that we showed, and our innovation hub has been bigger than ever in this uh, Future Fabrics Expo. I thought it was fascinating. It I really mean, tables was. full of very strange materials. And they were beautiful, weren't they? I mean, it is so inspiring. That's why the fashion designers, they really get excited when they come, and that's why we have such crowds, because they see all these opportunities for fashion. Like... I would say some of the exciting ones come from agricultural waste. So it's really waste streams from food production. It's not necessarily... So what, I mean, orange fibre is an obvious one that comes with citrus peels. Exactly. Then there, Yes. Then there is, for example, from um, apple industry, from the juicing industry, and they use the, the, sort of the pulp from that, and they make it into a leather-like material. There are from banana stems, from pineapple, but it's not necessarily from the compost heap of people's, you know, after they've eaten. It really is sometimes very early in the supply chain that they're using leaves and stems that otherwise would not be used. Those 
those are perhaps the more talked about alternatives to some conventional fibers because they're cellulosic. So you're basically using right. this pulp in order to create a viscose like yes. material. But what about the weird ones, Nina? So, for example, we had 3D printed seaweed, which, you know, all from. Was it printed? Mycelium. I didn't know that. So it was actually 3D printed, How? yes. Well, you use that material and you put it through a 3D printer. So instead and you of, can obviously, actually, we conventionally use plastic, so it would be a sheet of seaweed-based yeah. material. It's all moldable. You know, you can actually also use these materials to mold. So, for example, we had things for mushroom roots, which were then molded, um, looking great. They have so many applications. Then there were um, biodegradable sequins, which look absolutely stunning. Actually, or, that's one people are very excited about because yeah. everybody who loves glitter and glamour feels disappointed that maybe sustainability will mean that they have to have things that are devoid of that. No, that's absolutely not true because even we had recycled polyester sequins which then had a biodegradable film on top to reduce again the impact. And actually they are working on fully biodegradable ones. I looked up their Instagram yes, and we'll share a link. Exactly. So the biodegradable sequins are completely biodegradable over time. Mm. But then also we had, for example, solutions for packaging in the fashion industry. So, you know, there was almost, it looked like, it looks like foil. I don't know if you saw that. And it's to package anything in fashion because not only do you have the, the point of where you need something to wrap at the where it's a sales point, but also in the whole supply chain, shipping things back and forth between Which we design see. studios. Exactly, but that's normally plastic. So here we have something that is a biodegradable plastic compost or plastic even. Amazing. Okay, Nina, what is the sustainable angle? Because that's the organization that you formed. Was it eight years ago? It was actually in 2010 and it was formed in Switzerland because I was living there at the time and it's a not-for-profit organisation because we put a lot of background information out to support these sustainable materials that were introduced to the fashion industry and um, that is very difficult to fund. So we were relying and still are relying on corporate sponsorship and also on um, foundations to support that part of what we do. And so the sustainable angle, one of the main projects is the Future Fabrics Expo and that is now one of the biggest showcases and it really is just for sustainable materials and to make it super easy for any designer who's looking for materials that are just fashionable, high quality and are not costing the planet. But your background in fashion is nil. It's totally nil. <laughs> I worked on an environmental policy basically right from the start and it's one thing that I was always interested in. One of my first jobs was at Greenpeace, manning the phones and, you know, taking questions. Really? So the environment was always a big thing in my life, having grown up in Switzerland and then studied political science and then over time added another master's and yet another. And the last one was on sustainable agriculture and rural development. Soil. And that is all about soil. <laughs> when we exactly. started to conceive of this episode, it was all about soil because for me... This is something I don't know anything about. I've heard the UN stat that we only have 60 cycles of soil left. Correct. I find that terrifying, but I don't really understand it. Obviously, we know that fashion, much of fashion, if it comes from natural fibres, comes from the farm and comes from the seed and then ends up in our clothes. But actually, I'm not really across this whole soil issue. I hadn't really heard it discussed much in the fashion industry until... You raised it, and now I feel like yeah. everywhere I look, everyone's talking about soil. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Why is soil of such importance to the fashion industry supply chain, and why is it such a big issue now? You have to think of it this way. Fashion just depends on the raw material, and most of that raw material comes from soil, unless it is a synthetic. And so whether you look at cotton, whether you look at hemp, um, whether you look at uh, linen, well, everything comes from soil, it depends on the soil. Fashion, therefore, is one of the biggest problems with it, but also has the biggest potential to actually solve it. So if you're looking at um, initiatives such as, for example, caring, 
they are working with institutes together to really look at how can they create raw materials that are from uh, regenerative agricultural systems. What is regenerative agriculture? Because this is a sort of buzz phrase. Yes. What does it mean? Think of it this way. It used to be called biodynamic agriculture. Then it was called sustainable agriculture when I did my master's in that. And now it's called regenerative agriculture. So it sort of goes through phases. But it all comes down to the same thing. We have to be careful with soil. We have to be sure not to pollute it. We have to be sure that we don't create soil erosion, which means that the soil actually gets so dry it gets blown off. It slants down and therefore we lose it completely in the waterways and the topsoil takes about 500 to 1,000 years to form about an inch or whatever, three centimetres and that, you know, if we lose that we lose any fertility and therefore we can't plant anything, be that food or for clothing. It's actually quite frightening. I mean, that stat that I mentioned from the UN will share some links to some further reading. When you start to think that we have degenerated potentially some of our soils to such an extent that we may not be able to grow food, that's alarming. Precisely, and that's why we are very keen in what we do to try and show the diversity of the fibre basket is crucial. Therefore, anything that is not very hard on the soil is a very important alternative to, for example, cotton. So when you look at other fibres, for example, hemp or linen, which comes from the plant flax, they are inherently more sustainable because they are hardy crops. They grow on non-fertile land, on marginal land, so you can still use that land for food. And they don't need very little pesticides or synthetic fertilisers because they can grow without much food, so to say, so therefore not hard on the soil. When we don't look after our soil, can you give us an example of what sort of future we're faced with? Well, if you look at, for example, the cashmere herds, so about 20 years ago, everyone went crazy for cashmere. The herds just became huge. And as a result, the... And this is in Mongolia. Beca- this is in Mongolia mainly, yes. And because of that, they did not have the nomadic lifestyle anymore. And the herds became too big. They were stationary. Overgrazing took place. The soil couldn't recover. But all those little hooves, too many. Exactly, trampled down. And so there was a result was desertification. And all the soil then gets trampled doesn't absorb moisture at all gets blown away and I've therefore that actually soil all the little is, binding plants that were holding the soil yeah, in place none of, none of it is, is possible anymore so the ecological balance has been completely disrupted the effect on nature but also on people is huge but so, what does that soil blow away yeah of course because when it's so dry and uh, then uh, actually it gets blown away that was one of the main problems in the cotton fields in Uzbekistan as well so they have damage on to buildings uh, people's respiratory problems hundreds and thousands of metres further, kilometres and kilometres of desertification problems as a result. Why are we so dependent on cotton? I mentioned before that up to 70% of all fibres are synthetics, but something like 24-25% of fibres are cotton. Why are we so addicted to cotton and conventionally grown cotton at that? Basically, cotton is obviously a very versatile fibre and you can do almost anything with it. I would say we have to start thinking much more about how different fibres are applied to what sort of type of garments. And I do think there's always a requirement to have soft cotton on your skin because it just feels so good. But there are alternatives to that too. There are these regenerate cellulosic fibres such as tensile or there's so many of these. So I think it's a very versatile fibre. It feels so good on your skin. But then again, you don't necessarily have to have an outerwear garment made of 100% cotton. You know, you can blend that with, for example, hemp or linen. That's a very obvious choice. Um, Is cotton still cheap? Obviously, synthetics are cheaper. 
Yes. Or so, the basic ones are. So this is the thing. With all these pricings, we always forget that the externalities are not factored in. That means the cost of to the environment, the cost to nature, and at the end of the day, the cost to us, to our health, that is never factored in. So that question of pricing is, you know, we have to think about what that oh really means. Oh, God. It's like the true cost. Obviously, that's the name of a documentary about mm. supply chains and people. But when we think about what you're saying, externalities, we're not paying the true cost for fibres. No, and this is what they call the polluter pays principle. And that actually, you know, that was taught at business schools already back in the 90s. And it still takes that polluter pays principle means that you are taking into account into the price the pollution that has been caused uh, by the producer. But we don't do that. Well, no, but this needs to happen. Does anyone do it? Not yet, but I think it will happen because it costs everyone so much, um, this pollution that we're creating. So if the factories were integrating that into the price of what they're selling, then that would change the picture entirely. So, for example, when municipalities need to pay higher costs because the water that they have to filter is so polluted. Well, at the end of the day, you and I are paying that as a taxpayer because that's but we're just how the not paying works. it on the cost of the garment. Well, it needs to be factored in, yeah. And so therefore, the people who are actually producing in a more sustainable and clean way, essentially, that will become cheaper because they are not producing that pollution, which, if factored into the price, would, you know, you'd have a level playing field. And this, I think, is going to come now. I spoke at a conference in Berlin called Neonit Fashion Sustain. And it was quite interesting because on that stage were members of Greenpeace, people from World Wildlife Fund, and then producers and factory owners. There was a woman called Amira Jehia who runs a startup out of Germany called Blue Ben, which is basically a sweatshirt label. They only make one thing, sweatshirts. And she wanted to prove that this was the most sustainable way, she thought, to create this jumper. They also give back an element of the profits to water projects in different locations, and you can track it online to see where your money goes. But her assertion was no one needs to use cotton and organic cotton she said this on stage is hardly any better and she urged designers in the audience to really question do you need cotton she was using a sustainable form of viscose from beechwood now the audience sort of rippled with discomfort when she said that because i think we all tend to believe that organic cotton is obviously a brilliant solution because it's not using pesticides how brilliant a solution is it and what does it depend on So, it's a bit of a long answer, but essentially I would disagree with her. Now, first of all, as as I said before, the diversity of the fibre basket is crucial. So, yes, we can't all carry on with cotton, be that organic or not, and polyester, that's absolutely out of the question. We have to integrate the ones that she has mentioned, be that sustainable viscose, such as a Covero or Tencel, what have you. But organic cotton as such, yes, it still grows on fertile soil. That is... Which could... So, the argument is we could be using it for food. Yes, but... Anything in an organic agricultural system grows in crop rotation. Therefore, you do not have this season per season per season. So, so what, one year they're growing lentils, the next year they're growing cotton? Several or times a year. It's, yeah, yeah, that as well. So because it grows in a, in a rotation, very often the cotton is actually then a cash crop, the only cash crop, and everything else is for food. So it also means that the soil never really gets exhausted because you always replenish it with the next crop that grows after organic cotton. The other thing that I would say here is that it's rain-fed. Organic cotton is well, 80%, no, 80% is rain-fed. Really? Yeah, 80% of organic cotton is rain-fed. I mentioned a representative from Greenpeace was on stage and he had said it really depends on location because in some places cotton crops can be rain-fed but in others they require heavy irrigation. Australia is a good example of that. Mm. I would say organic cotton, it regenerates the soil. 
It grows in rotation and it is a carbon sink. And that is one of the elements that people forget. In an organic system, you do not have the pesticides and the synthetic fertilizers. And the last thing I would say is it's very important for the communities. Because if you look at India, for example, there's a lot of smallholders who only survive because they have a cash crop, which is often perfect, uh, organic cotton. And everything else that they grow is for subsistence uh, farming, for their survival. So it fits in really well. So that's a component we shouldn't forget. Another issue that was raised by Amira was that she had, this was just one example, but she said she'd visited an organic cotton mill in Pakistan and seen firsthand that often organic was mixed up with regular. Absolutely, yeah, it does happen. Therefore, we do rely on good certifications. We do rely on standards such as GOTS to verify that. But you know what? Yes, there are mistakes that happen. And yes, for sure, things get mixed up. With all these systems, you do have flaws. And I don't think anyone pretends that it's perfect. But I don't think that's the reason not to use any organic cotton. I mean, as I said, it is about having a bigger diversity of fibres that we're using There are also, and I just want to touch briefly on this, problems associated with viscose. We'll share some links to the amazing work that Canopy does. Something like 150 million trees are cut down annually to create viscose. Some of them come from old-growth forests. Absolutely, and that is a scandal. And everyone, every consumer and every designer should really question whether viscose is from what they are using and what is the raw material. But again, you know, there are certifications and organisations like Canopy. There are companies like, for example, Lensing, who really goes out of their way to be very transparent in our supply chain, to only use FSC or PFC certified What's PFC? plantations. It's a similar thing to FSC, but it's less stringent. And it's more of an industry-wide body. Um, but we can't just take as read when we see viscose on the fabric label that that's sustainable and I think it's a greenwashing thing we do tend to say oh it's sustainable it's viscose Oh my gosh, not absolutely not, because viscose in its production is one of the most polluting fibres ever, because it needs to go into this huge chemical soup to dissolve the pulp, and that has a huge environmental impact. So again, it's the raw material, but also it's the processing, and so that's why you've got to watch out what kind of viscose you're using. So look for such as Ecovero, or there's others around, which are really much more sustainable. And one of the problems that happens in less regulated countries, those fumes from the solvents escape into the atmosphere. Indeed causing workers to be sick, but also polluting the environment all around factories, polluting waterways. For sure. And that's the same thing with conventional cotton too. So it really is for the workers as much as it is for the for nature. But then don't forget at the end of the supply chain, there's the finishing stage. And that again is hugely chemical intensive. And so, for example, we had one company at the Future Fabrics Expo called Beyond Surface Technologies, who just totally committed to not use any fossil fuels uh, based finishing agents and do it entirely with with natural ones and they've achieved sports clothing with with wicking agents that are non-fossil fuel based and even won the world cup in those shirts really yeah the football team did german football team was wearing i don't think there's that much awareness i bet listeners are going oh i hadn't thought of it i don't think there's huge awareness around what kinds of chemicals, solvents and treatments are used in the finishing of textiles and clothes. Indeed, absolutely. Sometimes you get a scandal where we recognise that azo dyes are in certain batches of clothes that they shouldn't be in and they give people irritations but I don't think we've heard too much about what general finishing agents mean or are or even why they do it they do it of course to make fabric have a good hand feel but also wicking so absorbing the moisture 
absolutely. All of that, especially in the outdoor industry, that's a huge factor. To stop clothes from wrinkling, to keep mould out of clothes when yep. they're being in transit. And now, of course, the water, uh, the stain resistance, oh, yeah. all of these applications. So again, I think we just need to go back and just think about, is that all really needed? And are there alternatives? Because and there's a lot of new... You could be buying a natural fibre and thinking this is obviously great because it's natural, it's breathable, yeah. but it's been treated all as junk. Absolutely. So therefore we always, that's, that's sort of our mantra, apart from the diversity of the fibre basket. It is about thinking of the raw material, then thinking about the processing, finishing, and then thinking about what happens at the end of the life of the material. So where mm. is this going to go again? And that, of course, goes right down to cradle to cradle. Uh, like you had this wonderful podcast, uh, William McDonough, which is one of my ah, favourite yes. ones. Um, so I think, you know, that thinking is crucial and it should be mandatory for any design to read this. Nina, when you were a kid, were you obsessed with worms? <laughs> um, actually, yes. I've, one of my favourite things was to, uh, yeah, to help my mother when we had tomatoes growing. That was my favourite thing. It? And there were lots of worms there, yes. Can I just say yes. I didn't know that? I just thought, where does this soil obsession come from? Um, where did you grow that up? Was in Switzerland. And that definitely was clear about the start you look after nature you're part of nature and that's a thing that we keep forgetting these days i think we're all taking us out of this wonderful natural planet and so i think that was definitely something that was important for me growing up and also the realization that it's just such a wonder all these new innovations and technologies are coming out that are using nature but not in a way that has done before, but in a way of respecting nature and having nature as inspiration. So no waste ever created, you know, thinking in a circular way. All of these things fascinated me. Well, they fascinate you now as an adult, but as a kid, they didn't exist or weren't obviously on your radar. What sort of kids were you? And tell me a bit more about that childhood in the garden. Well, growing outside of Zurich was uh, blissful because you'd walk home from school and you would play with snails yeah that was one of the <laughs> first memories I have with my friend observing snails crawling up the trees and taking them off and looking how the antenna would go back in well weirdly I don't know why I'm telling this because it's true I'm telling you because it happened I had a pet snail <laughs> yes it was yellow right I found it in the garden and I called him sulfur <laughs> I don't know why I think he was a him because I have no idea and then I kept him in my bedroom and then one day it was not there. So who knows? It's who gone. knows what happened to Sulphur? Oh dear. <laughs> I love the name. That's excellent. Um, I'm staying right now in London with my best friend from school. She has a four-year-old. Last night I was watching him play with not the toy. Basically play with all the packaging of a toy that he'd been given for his birthday. And I thought, God, we give kids all of these really elaborate things. They don't want them. They're just as interested in playing with a box. And you were just <laughs> as interested in playing with a snail. It's always the best thing. I think you don't have to give the children all these fancy toys. You just have to let them play with stuff that is around them. What did your parents do? My father was an entrepreneur. He was the one when I said, you know, it's incredible how all these fabulous materials exist and nobody shows them at the conventional trade fairs. When I said, I think I should do it myself, which I just need to do this. He was the one who said, absolutely, just go for it. You had no experience in that realm, though. You only had an academic grasp. Yeah, of I used issues. to work in a think tank and I used to work in actually emissions trading. The Kyoto Protocol was very big when oh, I was you? in my early 20s. Yes. When everyone thought a cop was, you know, a policeman, I thought cop means convention of the parties to the UN Protocol. So that to me, that, yeah. So I, I did that. So I always had an interest in environmental policy. 
And your mother, what did she do? My mother was very interested in all sorts of conferences and things. So she co-organized one and she was actually the one who always talked about the Club of Rome when I was uh, growing up. Well, I don't know what that is, showing my ignorance. Um, So that is sort of late 60s, early 70s. And the Club of Rome was one of the first institutions, organizations who came together to say, we have to start thinking more connectedly. We have to start about thinking of the environment, nature. It was one of the first organizations pulling together academics, thinkers, very early on so she was always she was that kind of person who had very she was always thinking outside the box but she was with us her main thing was being a mother with us absolutely but she was the one talking of all these unconventional things she was a bit of a hippie so when you went into education I know you have two master's degrees one from the LSE and one from Imperial College Right. So what sort of professional future did you envisage for yourself? Did you think of working in policy? Is that what you wanted to do? No, nothing at all. I was just interested and I just wanted to crack on with what I believed in. And so therefore just kicking doors open and say, okay, so this is where I think we should be going. Who is doing that? And then I found this think tank and I found that's why I also went to Greenpeace and picking up the phones for three months. And then I um, went to this American company who was actually a brokerage and consulting company working on emissions trading. From the States, they were doing SOX and NOX trading, if anybody remembers that, sulfur dioxide and uh, nitrous oxide trading, and they wanted to take it over here and apply that to uh, CO2 emissions. Do you Did you always have purpose in terms of, it sounds like there's obviously this strong environmental thread work yeah. running through your professional life. Did you always want, I don't want to use the phrase save the planet, but maybe I will. Absolutely. I just couldn't understand how we living in such a big design mistake. Everything we're doing is just polluting. And, you know, even just a realization that we're flushing the loo with drinking water oh is goodness. just insane. That's one so, of the things that drives me bananas. In Australia, where we are yeah. amongst the highest uses per capita of fresh water, we know how London tap water has been through eight people. Australian tap water is all fresh been through no people yeah. we have no water yeah we flush it down the loo yeah it's insane and we water our gardens with it you'd be living in the biggest designer mistake ever so we really have to rethink everything hence cradle to cradle book being such a great guidance i give it to most people oh uh, do you oh yeah um it's one of the books that i have recommended to many many people but also read several times it's a very oh. persuasive argument oh it's Fabulous. And it's, it's so easily accessible, actually, mm. isn't it? It's a difficult subject, yes. but that book delivers the information in a really, it's really easy to judge way. He should get the Nobel Prize. I think another thing where fashion could really contribute as well, positively, is, for example, taking out the plastic of the oceans and making recycled yarns out of it. Now, ah, you know, but... you're not solving the issue of microfiber pollution, but if you do have to produce outerwear garments that need to be able to be worn in the snow, then, you know, that is perfect. So we can take that out of the oceans, not just cleaning the beaches, but really Really removing it like the company sequel for example and you can then make yarns out of that that is one of my problem areas because i'm constantly asked are we not then putting those fibers back into the ocean we do yes absolutely so this is why if you're a gardener and you're a listener you remember that a weed is the wrong plant growing in the wrong place at the wrong time now if you verse it to fashion if you're using the right fiber for the right garment, for the right application, sort of, then this is a huge, important thing. So, yes, we will always need some sort of material that is water-resistant and, and so on. But then let's just use recycled ones for those and everything else needs to be safe and renewable. And, and um Let, Let's finish up by talking a bit more about recycled fibres because we know that there is so much potential, so much innovation and so much work being done and advancements happening every day almost. Yes. 
in this area, but we still use bugger all recycled fibre. It's insane. I mean, mm. the oft-quoted stat from the Ellen MacArthur New Textiles Economy report from 2017 is that less than 1% of used clothing is currently recycled into new clothing. Yes. It's useless. It is useless, but again, you know, then we clearly the system is limping behind. Um, but do you have, what do you think about the future of that? Are we changing that rapidly? Yes, I mean, we have at least two companies that will be ready probably in a year or two years' time. So we're talking about having some of their materials shown in the Future Fabrics Expo coming from chemical recycling rather than mechanical recycling. So that is a big step and that is all happening now. There are already some fabrics that we have where 20% of it is pre-consumer recycled textiles that comes from cutting floors. But as you say, yes, it's far too little. Look out that window. What do you see? trash waste yeah. i mean right now out the window i can see a guy who's just emptying the bin or removing big plastic bags of junk but bins. There are, half of them are recycling bags the ah, clear okay. ones are recycled okay good <laughs> okay that's good to know because i was but then raising they, they don't recycle any textiles you have to bring them to the special recycling bin and they don't really get recycled they just get sent away to other countries and then you wonder aren't we destroying the uh, textile industries in those countries Yes, and the fashion industry. But just looking at that rubbish there, you're right, some of those bags are for recycling. But I just think, God, we just throw everything away. Look at it all. This is exactly, we are living in the biggest (laughs) design mistake. It's insane. But we're changing it now. We're about to. My final question has to be, if this were not the wardrobe crisis podcast, but were in fact carpool karaoke, what would you choose to sing? (laughs) Oh, my. Um, Probably a Beatles song, actually. Oh, which one? Here comes the sun. Ah, of course. We'll play that. Mm-hmm.